Hail Traveler, and welcome to the sixth episode of my informational yet heavily opinionated D&D podcast, where you can listen to all my thoughts regarding immersion, roleplay, and story prioritization at the low, low cost of hearing a dumb joke every now and again. In this episode, I'll be focusing on world building with a special emphasis on details that can help make your campaign oh so spooky scary, in the spirit of the upcoming All Hallows Eve. If you're looking to lead a campaign using pre-existing material, don't skip this episode yet because I'm not only talking about world building from scratch, but also how to bring out the best of the pre-existing elements in your campaign setting to further flesh out the world, to make it more cohesive, synergy, you get the idea. I'm your host, your ghost host, Alan Niles, and this is Outside the Dice. So, world building. Let's get started. When you decide to start a brand new campaign with a brand new setting, there is a lot to think about. I mean, you're literally creating an entire world. My process would generally be to think of the world map, or at least the main continent the adventure will take place in. Then I would start to populate that map. Uh, Put a forest here, a mountain there, River, river, another river, a desert. Then I consider the towns and cities that populate the area. I consider where the party is going to begin and can claim as their hometown. I think about the roles of some major NPCs and some special qualities that a town or city might have that makes it renowned within that world. With those aspects, I've pretty much created my world and I'm ready to really dive in. Basically, I just start broad and gradually focus in. If you're not building a setting from scratch, then you're in luck, because odds are all of that work has already been taken care of for you by whatever publishing company you're using the material from. For the purposes of this episode, I'm going to skip ahead and assume you've already done all of the work that I just mentioned, because... It's all fairly preliminary, and you can't really start a campaign if you haven't considered the setting that your campaign will take place in. The stuff that I want to discuss with world building in this episode is the primary threat scale, how that threat is interwoven in the setting, and the various creatures and monsters of your campaign. I'm regretting choosing such a spooky-sounding transition music because now I can't do something extra spooky for this episode. I could probably throw in some organ music or clip Monster Mash or something, I don't know. Anyway, if you're using pre-existing material, this next part will most likely have already been decided for you as well. That is the scale of the primary threat of the campaign. I think that this is a highly understated aspect of campaigns and can be under-considered by DMs who create their own homebrew setting and campaigns. Maybe not by all DMs, but I can speak from experience on this because I was that DM. I created a campaign 
where I totally botched it and underconsidered the primary threat scale. I created this campaign for my pals to play in which the return of an ancient and evil creature was foretold and certain doom was coming with it. A classic trope. The players were given the noble quest by the king himself to seek out four legendary warriors scattered about the corners of the realm and call upon their aid to fight the coming evil. The protective duty of these warriors was sworn to their realm, and they were the only ones powerful enough to stop uh, the return of the big old baddie. Pretty epic setup, right? I'm proud of it. I used a lot of cliches in creating it. I had a lot of fresh takes when creating it, but I am proud of how it turned out. But there's a pretty major flaw with the way I set up the campaign that was not made evident to me until after the long-winded campaign was over, which took my friends and I about five years to complete with on-and-off gameplay. The problem was my players were all starting at level 1, and this evil creature threatened the entire continent, or quite possibly the world. I mentioned this briefly in my very first episode, but I'm a firm believer that characters should be considered adventurers and professionals even beginning at level 1 because their capabilities are far superior to those of a commoner. A veteran in the Monster Manual has a challenge rating of 3, which means they would probably be a good match for a single character who's level 6 or 7. Again, that is for the stat block of an NPC called a veteran. A veteran, a person who spent their career learning the art of combat and retiring. If the combat prowess of common NPCs generally tap out at the equivalence of level 7, then the capabilities of the player characters by comparison should be clear since they can go all the way up as level 20. Now, all that being said though, level 1 is not when player characters should be receiving quests to save the world. Level 1 is when players should be dealing with local threats. My mistake when I built my campaign was in not considering the threat scale in reference to the player level. The level 1 characters may have been considered professionals in their respective classes, but it just doesn't make a lot of sense to place the fate of the realm in the hands of essentially a party of nobodies. What I should have done is start on a much smaller scale. Goblins are encroaching on the borders of civility, and they need to be pushed back. Bandits are consistently waylaying caravans to the north, and they need to be dealt with. The dead are becoming increasingly restless, and skeletons rising from their graves is a sight concerningly less rare than in but a few weeks prior. I'm not saying that I couldn't have incorporated my ancient and evil big baddie later on in the campaign, it's just a really steep place to start. I think approaching a campaign build in this way is important for a couple reasons. First, by scaling down the size of where players will be adventuring, quests will most likely come from the same few sources. You can begin to sculpt the personality contours of certain NPCs. Maybe you decide the town's guard captain cares little for petty crime within the town walls and is majorly concerned with outside threats. 
while the town mayor wants inner town crime to be prioritized. Now, as players accept quests from one figure or the other, opportunities for tension begin to rise, and players might be able to complete quests for both NPCs simultaneously for a while. But perhaps there is a riot within the town at the same time as an orc raid, and completing one quest means that players don't have the chance to do the other one that occurs at the same time. And that means that they favor one NPC over the other. I believe that when players have to make active decisions to appease one NPC at the cost of displeasing a different NPC, it means that they are actually attached emotionally to the characters in the story. Having players roam across miles and miles of land, never truly knowing a home, can make for interesting backdrops, but they'll have no reason to care about the characters who live in each of those places if they're constantly on the move and don't have the chance to interact with NPCs in a meaningful way. That's my second reason for why geographically downscaling the size of the adventuring sandbox is important. It heightens the importance of player actions and decisions. The players can't just stab every shopkeeper who refuses their party a discount if they have to actually stay in that same town for a substantial length of time. Checkmate, murder hobos. The great thing about pre-existing material is that the campaign is usually appropriately scaled for the party level already, but that doesn't mean this information has absolutely no application to those adventures. If the scale of a pre-existing adventure has a main town that players will spend most of their time, capitalize on that. Make the NPCs a meaningful part of that town to give the players a reason to want to protect it, other than because this is where the quests are. The third reason downsizing is important is that it will act as a great setup for the primary threat of your campaign to come. Remember that five-year-long campaign that I mentioned earlier? The one that took my players all across the region so they didn't have time to care about any one locale? Well, I wish I could say that stretching the sandbox too thin was the only crucial error I made, but there's another. The anticipated evil force that the oracles had prophesied, while an effective plot hook that thrusts my players into action, was hardly present in the campaign at all. Along with not caring about any of the towns they visited, my players had no reason to care about the evil force further than being told that they should care. And I'm not just talking about having your antagonist pop up every now and again, uh, literally in front of your players. But I'm talking about incorporating elements of their presence in the setting. This is where we can really get creative with our world building, regardless of if we're making up the setting and adventure ourselves, or not. After setting up a home base and making the players care about the starter town for the first few levels of their adventuring career, now is a great time to drop clues of that primary threat. Not the goblins or bandits or animated skeletons. Something far more sinister. Something that threatens more than just this small starter town. In my own campaign, the coming evil that needed to be stopped was a Dracolich, attempting to cross over to the mortal plane from whatever hellscape of a prison it had been contained to for yada yada decades. 
I worked tirelessly on dungeons and puzzles and riddles and NPC interactions the players would have to surpass, but I completely missed the mark with why this Dracolich was such a dire threat. For an example, I'll use the previous examples I mentioned in the last section uh, with the assumption that the Dracolich has been chosen as our big baddie for this campaign. The players are all level 1 and the starting town has asked the party to clear out a small den of goblins. They're a little more than a nuisance, but that's a perfect job for level 1 characters. However, when the players clear out the den, they find strange shrines dedicated to no deity in particular, but there are depictions of a dragon carved all over it. At level 3, the players are tasked to deal with the bandits to the north, and upon doing so, find that the surrounding vegetation is all blackened and withered. By level 5, the players go to the graveyard to deal with the restless dead. All is quiet, and all that is seen is a lone figure standing in the center of the graveyard. The figure turns to the party. It's the town diviner, and with wide eyes wet with tears, he simply whispers, She's coming and skeletons erupt from the ground in countless numbers. And then after combat, you can have the party brag to the villagers about how it was such a graveyard smash. Even in pre-written campaigns, it can be effective to make references to the primary threat even when they are not directly present in front of the players. Curse of Strahd is great with its sullen tone and the fear that Strahd could strike at any given moment, but even without relying on Strahd himself as a recurring antagonist, narration of his deeds in other ways can make the impact of his devastation clear to the players. In travel, the party may see a weeping mother holding her young child, a vampire spawn with a wooden stake embedded in its chest laying beside her. A passing caravan rolls creakily by, deep claw marks scratched on every side of the wagons. As they pass another traveling party, the strangers are quick to draw their blades, but as they get closer, they sigh with relief and sheath the blades, which are all clearly edged in silver. In this way, we're not just plugging in random narration to make overland travel a little bit more interesting. We're purposefully implanting narration that heightens the severity and the dire nature of why the adventuring party needs to stop the main antagonist to begin with. When you have a clear primary threat like Count Strahd or the feared Dracolich from generations past, the opportunity to populate the campaign with some nice set dressing also arises, especially if that threat is coming from a plane that is not native to the prime material one. If your campaign deals with a threat attempting to invade from the Shadow Vale, for instance, what effect would that crossover of the planes have? The party has been instructed that there is some disturbance 10 miles to the west, but after only traveling 5 miles, the party notices some disturbing things. Trees are all missing their leaves, the wind carries giggles and whispers. The rain smells faintly of copper and holds a red tint to it. Patches of flowers are seen that have petals of thin, brittle bone. Everything is 
covered in a dark, viscous goop a la Stranger Things style. As the party gets closer to the tenth mile, more disturbing observations are made. Shadows are clearly seen darting between the trees, but any attempts the party makes to investigate yield signs that nobody was there. A party member feels the cold grip of a hand on their shoulder, with no source when they turn to look. Parts of the ground pulse like living flesh in random intervals. None of these details may relate directly to what your antagonist is capable of or what they're plotting to perform, but it makes one thing clear. That this area, this dungeon, or enclosed space of the map, belongs singularly to the antagonist. There are many examples of this in the Monster Manual, with creatures that have layer actions and layer effects, but even if the antagonist themselves does not have layer effects, you can still apply those descriptions that heighten the separation of friendly and hostile. At this point, we're making great progress with our world building. We've given the players some NPCs and a home to care about, we've hinted at this looming threat that is becoming ever more present, and even displaying the stakes at hand with that threat. We've also had a good idea of what kind of tone the campaign will have right out the gate when deciding on the primary antagonist and the disturbing alterations to reality that tag along with their presence. That leaves just one more important detail to consider to really drive this campaign's tone home. Well, one more detail for this episode. There are tons of other details we could consider, especially when you're a nitpicky detail-oriented perfectionist like me. But that is, what various lower-level monsters will be present in this campaign? I honestly think this is where homebrew material can have a serious edge over hardcover material. Because in canon D&D, there are so many creatures. You have what's in the back of the player's handbook, the entirety of the monster manual, Volo's guide, Tome of Foes, uh, specialty creature stat blocks in some campaign hardcovers like Elemental Evil, Storm King's Thunder, Tomb of Annihilation, and I'm sure there's still more that I've left out. With such a vast catalog of creatures that exist, there's no possible way that your average Anna and everyday Daniel are going to have basic knowledge on every single creature. But Wizards doesn't really differentiate knowledge that is common within the universe from knowledge that the DM and players have. You may be able to narrow it down a bit and reasonably decide that if a creature is common to an area, then the commoners in the nearby town know a thing or two about them. Like, if trolls frequent the nearby swamp, then commoners might know to keep a torch or fire spell handy. But with the entirety of the creature list available, this can get overwhelming. Now, with homebrew material, on the other hand, you can decide which creatures actually exist in your setting, as well as uh, what is common in the area, and what would be thematically appropriate with your primary threat. Sure, you have the entire catalog of monsters to choose from, but a majority of those monsters may not even exist in your setting, or they're incredibly rare. Let's continue with our spooky scary example. 
a Dracolich is the big baddie, and we've decided to walk the path of horror adventure. Some common monsters are goblins and animated dead like zombies and skeletons, and the commoners in our starting town have dealt with these kinds of creatures before. The monster manual tells us that skeletons are vulnerable to bludgeoning damage, so our DM knows that, but is this common knowledge in our setting? In order for this to be commonplace knowledge amongst the villagers, skeletons would not just have to be common enough for villagers to fight, but common enough that every villager has fought a skeleton often enough to develop a strategy against it. So what's cool is that as DM, we are in control of how much knowledge the commoners have against these threats. And not only do we have control over how much knowledge they have, but also how much misinformation they have as well. Walking about the village when skeletons are rising from their graves, the party might hear the villagers say all sorts of things. Now, going to fight the skeletons? Make sure you wear a silver chain around your neck. If they spot you, make sure you stand completely still. They won't know you're there if you're not moving. They've got a weak spot right on the elbow. Knock them there with a sturdy club and the whole thing will shatter. Then you can add creatures to the setting that are more rare. Say, vampire spawn are accompanying the coming of the Dracolich. Now, not only can you decide what NPCs know about the creature and strengths and weaknesses about them, both real and imagined, but you can decide if all the NPCs even believe that a rarer creature truly exists. Since we've only picked a handful of creatures to place in our setting, we can also decide what other creatures villagers might think exist, but we know as the DM aren't real at all. Barbara says her boy was snatched in the night. A shadow, fast as lightning, grabbed him and flew off. She thinks it was some sort of vampire. <laughs> vampire! Don't be stupid. Vampires are just folk tales to keep children out of dusty mansions. I say it were a yeti that snatched that boy. And this, of course, opens the door of opportunity wide open to use that age-old trope the veteran fighter sitting alone in the dark corner of the tavern who pipes up after having their fill of misinformation to tell everyone how it really happened. We have all kinds of monsters and creatures in the real world that come from myths and fairy tales. Werewolves, minotaurs, unicorns, all of these come from legends and folklore that exist in our world. It only makes sense that in a world where these creatures actually exist, the common people are bound to make up stories about even more fantastical creatures. You think you're tough for fighting a minotaur? My cousin says she fought a three-headed minotaur, stood 13 feet high, and it had scorpion stingers for arms. You might hear that and think, that is ridiculous, who would ever think that? But it's no more ridiculous than someone claiming to see a horse with a horn on its head that has magic powers. As your campaign continues and your setting expands, you can also expand the list of creatures that you've decided exist within the world. As the party approaches a different city, peasants speak of banshees and wraiths, and scarecrows, and shadows, things that your heroes had not heard about before. Maybe villagers speak of vampire spawn and skeletons here too, but 
that are less trusting that they exist or the details might be more bizarre with increasing inaccuracies the further the party gets from where they first encountered them. You can incorporate the fame of the party by having peasants ask, is it true you've slain a vampire spawn? Deciding on how knowledgeable or inaccurate the common folk are with details of the most basic creatures in your setting is a broad place to start where you can then focus inward on how much experts know on the same subject, or how much commoners know about rarer creature types. If your players are new to D&D, throwing some misinformation into the mix can keep the game fresh and allow some additional places for players to test their insight checks because they don't know what to truly believe. They might take that commoner's word and find themselves a silver necklace only to find that it truly has no effect. If your players are veterans who can see right through all that misinformation, well, I think that just heightens the feeling of being a professional adventurer. Now, not only are the player characters better equipped for fighting monsters than the common folk due to their stats, now they're better equipped with information as well. Now veteran players going into a town is going to seem like a bunch of Geralt of Rivia's walking in for a monster contract, hearing what all the villagers think they know about the monsters, and the players just saying, yeah, that's garbage. World building is a long and arduous process, even when you feel like you're rushing through it, but the devil is in the details. Once you've figured out the bare bones minimum for your setting, make sure you spend some time figuring out how far reaching you want the threat of the primary antagonist to be. If the threat level means saving the kingdom, the world, or the multiverse, make sure the players are appropriately leveled so your players aren't straining to suspend their disbelief. Consider how the threat would affect the land with their presence. It could be as minute as murders of crows populating an entire forest, to as incredibly unnatural as wagons and buildings and an entire castle floating within an opaque darkness that can only be reached by the party swimming through the air toward it. Think of what creatures you want present in this campaign, what would fit best thematically, but also of what the people think about those creatures. The facts, the rumors, the totally unreliable, and the cryptically vague. I hope this episode met your spooky standards, but more than that, I hope it has inspired new ways for you to think outside the dice. And then after combat, you can have the party brag to the villagers about it was such a great... <laughs> oh my god.